Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hummingbirds, a podcast about composers and what makes them tick. Today, my guest is Taylor Ambrosio Wood. My name is Friedrich Hattien, and this is The Hummingbirds. Taylor and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. So let's start at the very beginning really. I want to talk about where you grew up and uh, the kind of environment you were in. So would you say that you grew up in a musical home? Um, I would not actually. So I grew up in southern Oregon, Ashland, Oregon. It's a tiny little town that has like a Shakespeare festival. It's got a bunch of theater. Um, But no, so Allegedly, my dad used to play piano, but not ever when we were when we were youths that I remember. Um, but no, but my family always really loved the arts and music. Like my dad would always listen to movie soundtracks like while working in the garage. So I think maybe that had some effect on me if I mean, I'm not a psychologist. Um, <laughs> but nope, not really. Like uh, after I joined Marimba's, my sisters joined with me, but Besides that, no, it wasn't really ever, I think maybe that might have worked to my advantage in hindsight. Like it was never anything pushed upon me, you know, like we all do music, so you should. So it's just kind of like I ended up having an affinity for it. My parents were like, sounds good. If you want to do it, go for it. That's that's really interesting. My two previous guests both grew up in very musical households. So uh, did, would you say that something in your childhood steered you like onto the path of becoming a music composer or instrumentalist at all? Well, how I got into music is through the Zimbabwean marimbas. So what these are, are African marimbas that like have kind of a buzz to them. Um, And no, basically how it started was that my mom wanted me to do something because like we had just moved to a new elementary school because our last one had closed. And she just signed me up for a bunch of different classes. Like one was like, you know, some, you know, knitting and another one was like writing. I don't know. You know what I mean? Various after school activities because I just apparently was just not very, you know, I was very um, like quiet and reserved. And I think she was trying to get me to like show interest in something. So just basically like every week, you know, I just try out a new after school activity at this elementary school. And one of them was marimbas. And um, I just loved it. I just loved hitting things. I just thought it was so fun. (laughs) Um, There's just something so great about percussion, like just the feeling of like just hitting stuff, but you're making music. And I loved the type of music, even though these were like super simple songs. So then I just came back. My mom was like, this is the one you can sign me up for. Like, I love this. So that was when I was like nine, I'd say. That was like my earliest inclination of music is joining this marimba band. I had no concept of composition. I had no concept that of career, anything like that. I was just nine. I liked hitting stuff. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, marimba ensemble, what was that like when, like, was it you and like a bunch of other nine-year-old kids hitting stuff together? What What was that like? Yeah, my poor teacher. Yep, that was what it was. <laughs> um, it was this woman, Jan Christensen, and she ended up being like my marimba teacher all the way through most of high school. Um, but no, it was just like she had, you know, marimba classes because she had these set of marimbas because basically, you know, there's a whole history of this, but 
um, marimbas came over with this uh, uh, musician named Doomy who basically brought them to the West Coast. So there's like a lot of marimba bands in, you know, along the West Coast, Seattle and California and Oregon. So they just, people started making marimbas here and starting groups. So she just had a bunch of different classes and taught at the elementary schools. But yeah, it was just a bunch of us kids. And um, we were playing really um, basic pieces really badly, but it was just really fun. And so I just loved it. And I just became kind of obsessed. Like I vividly remember like in middle school, because I did this throughout, you know, middle school until high school, um, going, eating, wolfing down my food and going to go play the marimbas in the band room at lunch and stuff. And um, yeah, because I just found that more interesting than my current set of friends, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I just remember they'd be like, let's go do this. I'd be like, I'm going to go play. Bye. Um, yeah. So that that was kind of how it got started. Did you learn through... Um like like by ear or like oh. some sort of suzuki method kind of thing or yeah. no it's all by ear so it's basically like ear and watching so basically the teacher will because this is this is a very oral style of music so they don't ever th write things down uh, maybe sometimes in kind of like a tab like writing down the beats as one through you know four or twelve or whatever and then writing like the letter notes because these instruments were in c so there were no um black keys Mm. And um, no, so it's basically you're just watching the teacher play and listening and then repeating. So they'll kind of break it down to sections because the music's very cyclical. So it's really just like you'll have a part. There's different instruments, sopranos, tenor, bass and baritone. And the part will basically repeat constantly or you'll have different parts. So they'll break down the part for you and then you just kind of are repeating that part. It's not like through composed, like if you were playing in an orchestra or something, it's more like this is your part and then that keeps repeating. Right. Okay. That's, that's super cool. It's almost like, you know, like fruity loops and stuff when you kind of make a, a loop and then you kind of combine that with other loops and then that kind of turns into music. That's super cool. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So did you have any like percussionist role models growing up or do you now i guess um as i got older i started kind of looking more at like classical percussionists when i got into that in middle school i started um i saw the local college professor play four mallet marimba like classical marimbas and i was like that's got four mallets i want to do that so my mom signed me up for she's what what a saint bless her heart signed me up for lessons with um, the college teacher when this was like when I was in middle school. So I went over to the college and like took private marimba, classical marimba lessons. Um, but no, so I, so as I got older, I kind of got looked up more people. Like, um, I like, I, the reason I went to my undergrad, which was the Boston Conservatory was for, um, this marimbas, Nancy Zeltzman, who was like the, um, you know, just kind of a world famous marimba teacher and performer. And, um, and then I got, you know, I know Evelyn Glennie is very prolific and I liked the composer Nabojša Zivkovic who composes for percussion marimba. So I basically, as I got more into the contemporary percussion world, then I started to, to kind of look people up, but there wasn't like someone who was a catalyst for me getting into that world. That's very fascinating. And it shows that we all come from very diverse backgrounds, I think. <laughs> yes. Yep. That is true. So I want to move on a little bit. Uh, I'm sure we'll get back to this, uh, but I want to talk a little bit about your history with uh, with video games in general mm -hmm. and your earliest video game memory, and then you know specifically related to music. 
the earliest video game I probably played was like Game Boy Color Pokemon. Um, so me and my sisters had Game Boy Colors and then we played a bunch of computer games, but I never really paid that much attention to the music. Like I liked it and I would listen to it. Like I remember liking the music from Automatic, which was like a Mac computer game by Pangea Software. Actually, that's what I named my cat after Auto. Oh. Um, but I remember really liking the music. So I would like download it and like listen to it a bunch, but I never really was like, the thought never struck me that I would ever write this kind of music. Like it never particularly stood out to me more than I just like music and all types of music. And I liked listening to it. What got me into video game music was actually, um, in my master's program when we, that was Berkeley Valencia has scoring for film, television, and video games in their Valencia, Spain campus. And I went there for film really was my more what I was thinking I was maybe going to try to do. But then once I got there and we did some video game classes and I was like, oh my God, video game music is just so much cooler. You can basically write more kind of complete pieces, I felt like, because you weren't tied to what was on the screen. And then all your pieces had to interlock based upon what the player was doing. And that's kind of when I, it was more in the actual creation of game music that I realized game music was so awesome, even though I had appreciated soundtracks growing up. It never really occurred to me to do that. So you never really tried like picking out like VGM tunes by ear on the marimba when you were younger or anything? Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, but I did that with all music. I liked pop music a lot. So I would try to figure out like pop songs on marimba and piano. I remember like I definitely had our marimba band play the SpongeBob theme. I vividly remember that. <laughs> so I picked out all those notes because I was like, this is like, yeah, middle school. I was like, we must play SpongeBob for this concert. So yeah, definitely. Um, like Pokemon, that's a great example. I love the Pokemon music. Yeah. So of course I definitely, you know, played around with it, but not in a real serious way. So you mentioned Spain, and that's definitely a thing I want to get into right now, actually. We're going to move a little bit into higher education stuff here. And I, uh, I'd like to talk about, like, well, your education and how it helped you to, you know, on your way to where you are today. So I, I yeah, grew up in Southern Oregon. I ended up taking classes at the local university, Southern Oregon University. So basically high school, I went to high school online. So I didn't really go to public high school because oh, okay. they didn't really have much of a music program. And so I took classes in percussion ensemble and theory and all that stuff at the local college, actually. Um, so then I, I, I just loved playing marimba. So yeah, so I was like, okay, let me just apply. I wanted to go to a conservatory on the East Coast. I just had this in my mind. And so I applied to a couple. It ended up Boston Conservatory working out. And that's where Nancy Zeltzman taught. So I was like, oh, this is great. That's what I wanted. I wanted to go study with her. Hmm. Um, so it basically, the, at this point, composition was not like I would, I would kind of play around and make stuff up, but it wasn't an actual thing I thought I could do. I was like, I just play stuff. Composers write stuff. Like I can't I'm not like a creative person who would do that kind of thing. Huh. So then I went to undergrad at the Boston Conservatory and that was a real shock to the system, I think, because I hadn't really had much experience with, like I had played and I played double bass, like in the local, you know, youth symphony and all that stuff and like played percussion in percussion ensemble, but I hadn't really been, um, you know, I hadn't really seen the real contemporary classical world of like, excerpts like I didn't know what an excerpt an excerpt like blew my mind do you want to tell the listeners a bit more about that so an excerpt is basically 
I hope that you also think this is ridiculous, listeners, that basically, so there's piece of orchestral music, okay? And for percussionists who are in the back of the orchestra, like playing snare drum, timpani, glockenspiel, all that stuff you see, um, they don't play throughout the whole piece, right? Usually they just kind of come in, play a little bit, come out. So there are particular pieces in the catalog of classical music that are difficult on each of these instruments. So basically what you'll do is just play like a couple lines, like let's say of Shostakovich, you know, 10, there's a really crazy snare drum part. Mm -hmm. And so you'll just learn that. And so what these excerpts are for is for auditioning to be in an orchestra, because what you'll have to do is like, if there's an opening in orchestra, you'll go and like play these specific excerpts. So you're not playing the whole piece. You're just playing these excerpts right. by yourself as a percussionist, which has usually like, unless you're playing xylophone or anything, it has no pitches too. So it's like, you're just playing like rhythms on snare drum. But what I thought was crazy is that people would practice these like to an insane degree. Like we had excerpt class every Saturday during the freaking day. We had to go and perform these for our teachers and they critiqued us as a panel and we just had to play them all. And nobody would actually learn the whole piece unless you were an orchestra and they happened to be playing it, which I thought was crazy too. I was like, so you're just going to play out of the symphony, these like 10 measures forever, forever. And so you walk down the hallways <laughs> And you just hear the same, like, I remember the Porgy and Best xylophone thing. Any percussionists out there are going to be triggered. But um, <laughs> but there's this, like, xylophone lick, and they just play the passage over and over again. And I was just like, I was like, this is my nightmare. This is my nightmare. I just, oh, I just, no. I didn't like them so much. I was like, they're so out of context. They're not, they're just the percussion parts. And then there was such a religious way to doing this at the conservatory. Yeah. That was like, you have to use these mallets. These are the magic flute mallets. And they're very specific for this excerpt. And you got to have these symbols for this excerpt. And I just thought, I just thought I was going crazy because everyone was like, oh yeah, yeah, mm -hmm, you got to do this and that. And I was like, this is so just like, I just could not see the real world application because you're, you're not even learning how to play them musically, you're learning how to play them to win an audition. It was like, okay, they want to hear you play it exactly like this. Like it was so specific to winning an orchestral audition. I was just, I, it blew my mind. I just had never seen anything like this, but that was like such a big part of the percussion program was like grooming you to be in an orchestra. Oh man. I mean, what do you do when you get in? It's like, yeah, I can, I can play this one piece <laughs> very well. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I don't know. Uh, the whole orchestral audition process is crazy. Um, I have some friends who are still pursuing it or a couple who have actually gotten positions, which is great, but it's just crazy. But I went in from marimba. Like I got in from marimba. My snare drum playing and timpani playing was kind of crap. Um, so, but I was very good at four mount marimba because that's all I spent my time in. Like I was, I was just that's what I was doing. So I was in more interest in playing like musical pieces. So like snare drum never really resonated with me because I was like, there aren't any pitches. And that was just really hard to get behind. I guess it's... Uh, Does that answer? Might... Did I totally go on a tangent? Sorry. No, no. I, <laughs> I think I, I, I totally I, went off. <laughs> I, uh, I I love it. It's amazing. And that's what, that is what this show is all about. Um <laughs> For the for the listeners, I want to just clarify that when Taylor is talking about pitched and unpitched, uh, it is about like being able to produce like notes from a scale versus just producing well, not just producing noise, but you know, it, it is there that that little difference. So, 
But no, I, I enjoy the tangents very much. I got this amazing vivid image of you running up the Super Mario 64 endless stairway and just hearing this repeated loop of music just uh, going on around you. Just da 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 And just yeah, it never ends. it's actually. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag truth bomb. Anyway, I, I want to move on to uh, the next part of that question, which is the uh, abroad studies that you that you did. Yes. So what happened was... Um, I, well, well, this basically dovetails into the tail end of my time at the conservatory. So I was, cause this is how I got into composition because I, so basically I got my master's in scoring for film, TV, and video games, like I said earlier. And so this was a composition program, but at the time I was just a percussionist. I didn't like, you had for these master's programs, you have to like submit a portfolio, right? And like send them pieces and scores. So anyway, at the conservatory, I was about to just die playing these excerpts and stuff. So I was like, I should put my money where my mouth is and write something. So the first things I wrote was like a snare drum and dubstep piece where like I made an electronic recording and then you, it was basically like, oh my God, my teachers, I think hated it, but the students loved it. So I basically played, there's these De La Cluse etudes, which are like these snare drum etudes that I just didn't like, but basically it starts out as one. And then there's like a voice that's like, this is so boring. Let's play something cool. And then you like play along with this track. So, and then I wrote a marimba solo. So I basically just started writing for percussion. Cause I just was like, for my own recitals, I was like, I just can't do this. I can't, I need to just try to write something and I should stop complaining. So I started taking <laughs> composition lessons and it was really my composition teacher who, who pushed me to apply for these master's programs. So this was Marty Epstein. She was, um, uh, she's a composition teacher at, at BOCO and the Berkeley College of Music, which is across the street in Boston. This is all in Boston. And, oh, and then I took some, you could, through the Pro Arts Consortium, you could take like classes at Berkeley and the other colleges around. So I took like intro to film scoring, all this stuff. Um, but anyway, so we were writing pieces together. She was really great and encouraging. I basically went to her like, hey, I could totally be garbage, but I kind of want to learn how to compose. Let's see what's going on. So she had complete control, basically. She could have said, this is terrible, and I probably would have just not composed. But she was like, oh, yeah, so let's do this. And she was just such a great teacher. But she was like, you should apply for master's schools. And so I thought, oh, Berkeley's got a great program because I had taken the classes across the street, right? Of like, I saw how important technology was. I mean, I didn't realize at the time, but I was like, they're all using these computers. You know, I'm over here at the conservatory with a quill. You know, it's like <laughs> what in 1805, our, our registrar, we still had to submit paper forms. I mean, it was crazy. Oh, wow. That's why they, they actually ended up getting bought out by Berkeley the year after I left, which was hilarious. It's like, I saw that coming, but whatever. Um, so anyway, so she said, apply for these master's programs. Actually, originally I wanted to go to Cal arts, which was cause they had like a percussion composition program and I wasn't sure I wanted to just do percussion. Um, but, and I ended up getting into both, but I, I chose the Berkeley one because I was like, I think if I want a chance at making money in music and I just have, I had really over the last two years of my undergrad loved composing and been like, this is actually really fun. I still didn't really consider myself a composer. But anyway, so I submitted some um, recordings of some pieces I had written and I didn't know what a mock-up was. So I should probably explain that to the audience. But basically, um, many soundtracks today and music is made up of like 
uh, virtual instruments. So basically they're not live recorded. So they might be virtual strings or virtual woodwinds, like virtual imitations of real instruments. So a lot of music is done that way in your favorite game soundtracks and movie soundtracks, etc. It's not that common anymore to record real people, although a lot of people still do because, you know, it's different to get a real person to play it. But I had no concept of this. I just thought everybody recorded everything. So I submitted my friends and I playing and recording. So they were really impressed by that. But I didn't know that you could even send a, you know, a virtual mock-up of your pieces. So that just kind of funnily worked out because I think that's also what helped me get in besides just the music. Um, but yeah, so I went to Spain and did that program. And so that's basically how I got from percussion to composition, how I got in. Um, but anyway, this program, so it was a year long. It was very rigorous. It's just, they shove all the knowledge. It was, it was mostly the knowledge, the knowledge of technology. It was mostly all about computer software and like making these virtual instruments and all that kind of stuff. We had orchestration classes where every week we'd write for a different instrument. Like we went down the woodwinds, like we'd have flute and then a flute player from the Valencia film orchestra or opera orchestra would come and play our flute pieces and critique them and say, this is hard on flute, blah, blah, blah. So we got like really in depth with every instrument to write for them. That's really good. Yeah, it was awesome. Then we had like every week we had Budapest orchestra recordings where we'd like do remote recording sessions of our work with the Budapest orchestra. So we had to like, we'd get the prompt like a couple days before. Then we had to like submit all our scores, you know, the day prior so that they could be printed over there. So it was like crazy fast turnarounds. Like I was used to the conservatory timeline of the composers there would take a whole semester to write a piece, but this was like, you're writing multiple pieces each week. So you kind of just didn't have time to dawdle and doubt yourself. Like I remember the first, we had one of our first music technology classes. I was like so overwhelmed because I just didn't know. I didn't really use computers except for like notation programs, like writing the sheet music. I didn't use it to actually create music. So I called my mom and I was just like, I'm just going to fail out of this course, just letting you know. So it ended up all working out at the end, but I was horrified. So I think that's what made me also, because like a lot of the other students had come from, had had, um, been familiar with technology. So I felt like I needed to catch up. So I think that's what helped me because I would spend all my time in the tech lab, like trying to like understand what's happening. Um. But yeah, so it was just a bunch of orchestral recordings. Our final was recording uh, with an orchestra at Air Studios in London. So we all flew to London and conducted our pieces being recorded by an orchestra, which was amazing. It was that time I was like, okay, I've made the right choice. This is so sick. If I could just do this my whole life, I'd be stoked. Like, it just was so cool. It's like hearing your own music back by amazing musicians is just an incredible weird feeling because it sounds different than you could even imagine right because it's like they're adding their own musicianship to it oh for sure but it was yeah. just so cool So it's just like a crash course where they're basically just like how Boko, the Boston Conservatory, was prepping you to be an orchestral percussionist 
in an orchestra. This was prepping you really to be like a composer's assistant in Hollywood, I feel like was the main kind of thing. So you'd learn all these different side skills, you know, that you would need to be an assistant, but also kind of how to be your own composer, of course, like using software and recording with real musicians. And then we'd have our every week, you know, we'd write all these pieces for our different courses and the teachers would critique them in front of class. So you just kind of had to, like, I was so afraid of even showing my work, but you just kind of had to suck it up because you, they were going to listen to it, yeah. whether you wanted them to or not. So eventually I just started saying, do my piece first and then I'm going to go to the bathroom or get a snack. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's just like, let's rip the bandaid. So that I think really, that course more than even necessarily the actual knowledge from the course, it helped my confidence exponentially and just like getting used to the process of having to write something. And I can't sit there all week and go, Ooh, I don't know. Is this going to be good? Is that going to be good? I'm like, I just got to do something or I'm just going to get in trouble and fail and, you know, get an F for this project. Right. Yeah. So what happened when you got back to the States then? So... I have, it's just funny to think of how your, how what you think you're going to do changes so drastically. You know, I think that's just a life thing in general. You might think this is my very clear path. And then you're like, it totally just ends up being something else for better usually or for worse. Um, but anyway, so I finished Berkeley. And the whole thing was you got to be an assistant. You know, that's kind of was the general consensus that I got from the teachers is that you would make it if you went and were someone's assistant. Um, or if I want to do video games, I would have to become a sound designer and get in with a company doing sound design. So that, those were my intents, right? I thought, oh, I probably won't write music for years and years. I will try to be an assistant or do sound design. So I come back to the States. I make a nice resume. I start trying to apply for things. And just like, I get like no replies, maybe like a couple, right? Mm. And so I'm like, who can I, when do you even see an assistant posting? Like you rarely see one and then they pick someone they know. So I had a couple where like I, I uh, had been talking with a composer, but he said basically, he was very frank, which I appreciated. Basically, I won't be able to pay you enough to live in LA and they all wanted you to live in LA. Yeah. Um, but they don't, a lot of them don't really want to pay you that much because there's kind of a whole economy of... Um, oh, well, I can get some other young college kid to do it for cheaper. So what do I care? Which is not a great mentality, but unfortunately that is still relatively prevalent, I would say. Hmm. Um, but yes, so I was just, I went back and lived with my parents in Oregon. This was, they moved to Portland. And yeah, just like I had a couple, um, I had a couple like close, this was like over, so let's say this was like the next nine months something like that. So I had a lot of, so it, I had a lot of close calls. Like I was asked to do some tests for some big companies, which was great. So I'd write a demo, you know, et cetera. So some of them I got kind of far, I got to interview stages, et cetera, but it just never worked out. And, um, and then with sound design too, I was like, God, I got to make a sound design reel, but I didn't really like sound design, which I, I didn't, real you know i didn't realize right away because i was like oh it's related to music and for listeners sound design is basically making sound effects so like making a gun sound or making like the sound of birds or something 
I just didn't like it because I guess it wasn't in the, in the context of music. I don't know. Um, so I was just, yeah, I was just trying to be an assistant. I was trying to do sound design and just nothing was quite working out. I kept getting really close. It's really hard to be rejected a bunch and it's just a struggle, right? Cause you come out of school and you're like, Oh, and also I had all this student debt. Right. So it's like, I can't really just sit around. <laughs> I yeah. got to try to make money. So it was pretty dire. It was pretty dire. I was quite, um, just, I felt very lost. Um, a couple of my friends were able to get some assistant stuff. Um, so that's nice. And, um, and then everybody kind of just went back to where, you know, they lived respectively, but no, it was really hard. So I, I had a couple turning points though. So I was basically, so yeah, I was applying for, so I wasn't writing. That's the key takeaway. I was, <laughs> I was applying for sound design things, which I didn't want to do and wasn't qualified for. And then I was trying to be an assistant to people I didn't really know. So it was in hindsight, a bad plan, but I realized that relatively fast. I mean, people spend years trying to do something they realize they don't even want to do, or it's just not the right tactic. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so I had kind of a, a wake up moment, which was nice as I had emailed this composer, Ron Jones, who, who is the composer or was, I don't know if he's still doing it, but for like family guy All right. and, um, you know, American dad, I think, I, I don't know. I don't want to give the, but I know at least family guy. Okay. So he, I ended up while I was in Portland teaching at Clackamas Community College and he had like been the big teacher there. So he knew all the professors. He wasn't there at the time, but they were like, oh, you should reach out to this guy, you know? So I was like, okay, I will try. I basically sent him an email, something along the lines of, hey, I don't know if you need an assistant. You know, I'm working at Clackamas. You know, I know you used to be there. I'm a big fan. You know, that kind of email, Yeah. you know, um, just kind of a cold email. I didn't know this guy at all. And he sent me a really nice response. He basically said, I don't really do, I don't really have assistance, you know, I just kind of do my own thing. I have my own team. And he said, but you're really kind of wasting your time trying to be an assistant. You should really be writing and starting to be your own composer. Basically, it was a really long email. It was really nice. It was like, um, you know, being an assistant, you're going to have to establish yourself at some point anyway. So then you can start getting your own credits and kind of going, you know what I mean? It's like he basically just said he knows a lot of people who got stuck being an assistant for a really long time. And then they weren't able to keep any of those credits, you know, because if you basically being an assistant, I should explain, is like, there's a big composer and then maybe they need somebody to do orchestration or like kind of help them with the composition process or even write for them. Um, but basically he just kind of said, what, why are you trying to do this? You know? Um, and that made me think, and I was like, why am I trying to do this? Like, it's not working out. So I might (laughs) as well just start trying to write instead of sitting on my hands. You know, I mean, what have I got to lose at this point? Oh, I think that's a good insight to to reach there. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. I had never that had never really been explained to me in that way, um, and so I was just like, "Oh, that's a really good point, actually." And so I I was like, "Oh, thank you. You know, that's a good idea." So then I was like, "All right, I don't want to be sound designer, assistant thing. I can keep trying. I can keep trying for various, you know, in house composer positions." of which a couple I, you know, had gotten to the demo stages for, but, um, and those are rare and hard. Those are rare to find in games, let alone anything for the listeners, like finding an actual in-house 
composer, which means like a game studio has a composer that writes for everything. Usually the composers are outside contractors, even at like the top level of gaming. Um, and they're hired to write the soundtrack for the game. Yeah, I mean, the music composer doesn't usually have anything to do during most of the game production, like, you know, yes. process. So they'll just sit on their hands and wait and suck up money that the company doesn't want to pay them, understandably. So they usually use freelancers or, you know, external studios instead. And uh, that means that the composer has to find work elsewhere during the rest of the time. Right. Yes. So it's, it makes more sense for the studio to just hire them for when they need them. Yes. Um. But yes, so that got me thinking. So I was like, what am I doing here? What am I doing? So then I thought, okay, let me give this a whirl. Let me try to find something to write for, write my own music, right? I've got nothing really to lose. And so I just trolled the Facebook indie developers group and like screenshot Saturday, you know, hashtag screenshot Saturday. Mm -hmm. And I went to, um, you know, at this time I was also like trying to connect with other musician and game developers on Facebook and, uh, you know, mostly Facebook really at the time. This was like, this was 2016, um, is when I finished school. So then, yeah, basically I was like, I was like, okay, I should try to write something. So I basically just then cold emailed developers who I would on screenshot Saturday, I would see like they'd post, you know, screenshot Saturdays, just a hashtag, like, so you could post what you're working on, on your game. So I had read a bunch of articles and they're like, try to get in with somebody before they have music yet. And so I was trolling that. And then at the time, actually before that, my sister was like, you should email the developer of Yandari simulator. Cause she really liked that game. It's like a game that has a lot of, um, following on YouTube. Um, you should email him and see if he needs anything. I said, okay, why not? So I emailed him and he was like, yeah, you know, actually I have this uh, video where I'm going to be revealing all of the different um, new antagonists for this game. So if you want to do that. So I did that. That was like a week. And um, that got that got like millions of views, this thing. And um, it, was so, it was so brutal though, because I had to do like different themes for everything. And I'd do it like at a week, it was rough. But anyway, so that got, so I had him link. I said, I did it for free. So, cause he's like, I don't have any money to pay people, which, you know, I don't know what's the case anymore, but that was the case at the time, at least what he told me. So I said, I said, okay, well link to my website, you know, link to my work at least, right? And like put me in the description of the video, YouTube video. Mm -hmm. So I got a lot of people to my SoundCloud, a lot of people listening to that XYZ. So that was great. And so then I kind of used that to have, look like I have a little bit more people listening and stuff. So then when I approached people on Screenshot Saturday developers, I just messaged them like, hey, I, like I've picked games that I thought looked cool. Hey, I like your game. Like here's some examples of my work. Oh, and then on my SoundCloud, what I had done is I'd posted like all my exercises from from Berkeley, right? So I like made those all their own little pieces. I mm -hmm. didn't call them like exercise one. I just like made a title for it. So I built my portfolio through the schooling, right? Because I really tried to make each of my projects as good as it could be and use it for outside references, right? That makes perfect sense to use your like the portfolio that you already or kind of build the portfolio out of the things that you already have. Yes. So yeah, during Berkeley, I would sometimes get in trouble because I would like barely do the assignment. I would basically do kind of what I wanted, like, oh, I don't have a piece in this style. And then they'd be like, yeah, technically counts, but okay. But I was more concerned about having a demo for me <laughs> than like <laughs> a, a plusing the assignment, which in hindsight, I think was a good uh, methodology. Probably, yeah. Um, 
but no, so I contacted a bunch of developers, you know, a bunch said, no, I got my friend Jimmy doing it, blah, blah, blah. So it's just like a bunch of rejection, but not to discourage people. So a couple of people were like, yes, we like your music. So one of them was this uh, developer who was working on a game, Balthazar's Dream, which was about this little dog and it was really cute. And his like wife was doing the pixel art and it was really cute and they liked my music. And so I was like, okay, awesome. Um, I will do this for you. So that's what I was doing while I was in Oregon. So I was like, oh, I'm writing something. I'm like actually doing a soundtrack. Okay, that's a good step, right? Yeah. So I had just like messaged a bunch of people, right? And they were really great because they were just like kind of, they had an idea, but they were kind of like, what do you want to do? We like your music. So it was a nice, you know, it was different than the Yandari Simulator project, which they were much more like uh, whatever, you know, they wanted my opinion on what I thought would be good. So I'd worked on that. That ended up being like 25 minutes or so. It was quite a lengthy little soundtrack. Um, and at that time, I was going to GDC and uh, trying to go up to Seattle because Portland and Seattle are only like a three-hour drive away. And um, and yeah, so I just kept working on that. What did you have some sort of like like day job while you were doing this, or um, basically teaching at the college, right? Um, like now I still teach. I've like created my own like teaching studio. Um, but yeah, so teaching is what I did. What kind of like, what what was it like? Like, did you encounter, I guess we all encounter like hardships on our road toward where we are today. I mean, on some level, but what was your journey like up to this point? Did you have any, I mean, you did have a lot of like, uh, I don't know, just a, a, a few months there that you that were kind of low and you didn't really know where you were going and you felt like you were kind of stuck in a rut a little bit but would you say that it was a like would you say it was a struggle basically um certainly certainly yes it's hard it's hard it's hard i'm not going to sugarcoat it at least it was hard for me and it's still hard i mean i'm still you know trying to do this trying to do that trying to push forward and so it is really tough because what I found the most stress from was um, financial, financially, not necessarily that, oh, I need to work on this kind of project or whatever. It was more like I have a lot of student debt, a lot, and I need to make huge loan payments each month. And I, my parents are, bless their hearts, super supportive. And like they would, 
and have thrown me money in desperate times, but they're not, they can't really support me in that way, right? They don't have, you know, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So they can't really pay, pay my way, you know, and I also wouldn't want to put that on them. Oh, I get it. So that caused a lot of stress for me, especially at the beginning. I mean, it's, that was what, 2016, now it's 2019, and I finally got some stability. I got my teaching, I've got, you know, clients and all this stuff. But it's just, it's a struggle because you're like, I need to, I want to do this art, but I also need to make money. That was, that's, that was the hardest balance to find because a lot of people early on will want you to do things for free. A lot of people will, um, you know, it's hard to even get a shot, let alone get paid for it. Um, so that was really hard for me. So it was just a lot. So yes, it was, and it has been a struggle of like, am I doing everything I should be doing? Um, how am I going to make money? And yeah, a lot of it came from too, is like my own projection of what I quote unquote should be doing. You know what I mean? I think there, I think that happens with just people in general, like in life, especially young adults out of college. It's like, but my friends are doing this. Should I be doing that? Should I try that? Am I where I need to be? Like, there's a lot of like, I feel like a lot of my hardship was like my own projection on myself of like my own, I need to be at this point here. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And like being overly critical, even though I hadn't really been composing that long, I was doing the best I could, you know, in hindsight. And even now I'm trying to cut myself some more slack and be like, okay, I'm, you know, doing what I can. Like I was actively looking at the Facebook groups, trying to write some music. I took that composer's advice when the, applying for sound design things wasn't working, I pivoted. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. So it's kind of like this this struggle of, you know, X, Y, because a lot of people have told me, you know, this is how you should do it. You need to start as an, as an assistant. You need to do this and that. And you need to, you got to do, write this kind of music. You got to work for a music library. I don't know who I'm imitating, but you know what I mean? <laughs> There's a lot of people who got a lot of opinions, I must say. Yeah. And I'm sure, sure you've experienced this. Oh, yeah. It's also like I started to like try to have my own opinions and be like, who's this person? Do I want their life? Do they know anything about my situation? Is their advice relevant to me? You know, I started to be more self-critical of like, who was I listening to actually? You know, is this kind of a thing that I wanted to emulate? You know, you're very unhappy and always complaining. And now you're trying to tell me how to live my life. Get what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. So I, I started, like, that's what has helped me in my struggling is like a lot of it came from, yeah, financial stress. How am I going to make money? Okay, I got to, you know, get some students and build up a, a teaching studio and, you know, ask clients for this much money and negotiate for myself, you know, all that kind of stuff. And also, like, I'm not doing what I thought I should be doing, but maybe that's fine. Maybe this is what I should be doing because this is where I've had more success in writing my own music. You know, like going back to that Balthazar's Dream game soundtrack, that got me the next gig and the next one because I take everything very seriously and try to do the best job I can. doesn't matter how many people might play it, might see it, whatever, right? So it's like you can kind of start to dig yourself out of it by going, okay, what's working? You know, let me pivot to what actually fits my skills and my interests, you know, which was not sound design. And I thought for like that whole first year, I needed to be a sound designer and I don't do sound design now, like at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm like, Hey, I, I'll do the music. You, and then most clients will respect that. They'll be like, Oh yeah, I have my own sound designer. I'll get this person. I understand they're two separate fields. So I figured out that that was kind of a myth that was, t you know, told to me a bunch. So it's like trying to, to, start to formulate your own opinions. Like even 
you know, listening to what I'm saying now, whoever's listening might go, okay, I agree with this, what she said. I don't agree with that. You know, like what, because everyone has such a different path in this kind of creative field. Like what information is actually helpful and relevant to your situation and you can try out. And it turns out it's actually not a lot of it, <laughs> at least in my experience. It's like, oh, a lot of this is not relevant to me because they're telling me things that I would be fine to do if I didn't have any financial responsibility. Get what I'm saying? It's like everybody's situation is different too. It's like, oh, just go and travel and do things for free. And I was like, oh, that's fine. I'll just, you know, Wells Fargo will come and break my legs for not making my loan payments. <laughs> what the world are you living in? You know, sometimes it's just not relevant. Like I, I'm blessed that I even have my parents to live with and my parents to support me. Some people don't have that. They got to like get a job to pay rent now. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So it's just, so then my advice, you know, maybe people listening are like, oh, I can't go live with my parents after graduation. That's like not something I can do. Right. So it's, it's just different for everyone. So you need to see what is your situation? What is relevant to you? And what do you want to do? I, I rarely interject in these kinds of interviews with like stories of my own. And I don't intend to like go on a long tangent here. But I do want to say that Oh, no, go for it. <laughs> I do want to say this, I have personally struggled a lot with that as well, this, this perceived idea of who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? You know, at my age, at my mm -hmm. situation in life, whatever it may be. And your brain is very good at finding these kind of excuses almost. Not, not, not excuses, but your brain is very good at self-sabotaging, I find. Mm -hmm. And so you, you, you kind of have to understand, uh, dear listener listening to this, this is one of the points like why I wanted to make The Hummingbirds a podcast to begin with. We are all different. We are all unique and it sounds very kind of wooey and new agey and whatever but it is very true we all come from different places we have different origins we are going on different journeys and what works for me what worked for taylor what worked for rebecca and chelsea may or may not work for you sometimes it's an amalgamation of all of it or sometimes it's something completely different i think it's very easy to find stories of success from I, I don't know exactly what it's called i don't remember the term but there's this term of like someone who went through it and managed to survive and then they go oh it's easy you just have to do this right mm -hmm. and i think it's very important for you to realize uh, the ones who's listening here that it's okay to fail and it's okay to do different things than your friend x y and z who did something else and that's all i wanted to kind of interject with that no, I 100%, 100% agree with you. And it's in those failures that you might realize it will test your conviction. Do you really want to do this? Are you, do you think, oh, maybe I'm putting myself through all this rigmarole and I'm not even, I don't even want to do this style of music. I mean, that finding your own way, like you just said, goes even beyond your own career. It goes like you as a musician or an artist. It's like, do I want to write trailer music? Me personally, I discovered that I do not like it at all. Sorry, trailer music. But do <laughs> I want to be this kind of composer? Do I want to write this kind of stuff? So it's also trying things out that you will like, maybe like I tell this to my students all the time, my composition students, like if they're like a really great guitarist, and they're like, oh, I'm not really sure about reading music and all that stuff. And I was like, we're going to work on that so you can do anything, but also maybe lean into your guitar playing if you love it. Like do some cool guitar textures and patterns. Like you can play to your strengths, you know, it, and everybody has a different set of strengths. So not only in your life and career path, but as a musician or an artist, it's like, oh, I love doing this style or this kind of thing. Like you can kind of 
create your own niche and play to what you like to do and what's interesting about you, right? Because everyone has something interesting going on. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree. All right. So I, uh, I hate to leave this subject, but we might return to it later. Uh, I kind of want to just go on like into a bit of a lighter note, I guess, <laughs> or, uh, Oh yes. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but the, but I hope, I hope there's a positive undertone. Like, yes, it's hard, but you know, keeping, keeping your conviction and kind of realizing why music's so fun and amazing in the first place. And it's in the trials that you kind of find and realize what you want to do. So, so be positive people. I'm not trying to be negative. It's like uh, writing music is amazing and like, it's going to be great. And there, I definitely would not trade any of the hardships I've done for the world of like being able to write music. So positivity. people. Yes, yes, for sure. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, the, the, the heavy stuff is also very much part of who we are as people. But I want to go into like some sort of, yeah, I guess a little bit of a more technical field here. I want to talk about how you work, Taylor. I want to get to know your musical process. So I want to talk about like, well, you're you're writing a new track. You like you have like a music track or a composition in mind. Like I want to go through the process here. Like where where does the initial like spark come from? Where's where does the initial idea like this is this is what I want to write? Where does that come from for you? Um well, generally speaking, it's determined by the client. So the client like developer or if someone's having me orchestrate or write a track, a one-off track, it's like, I want this kind of vibe or this is what the art looks like. So I like to go for the visuals because that helps me understand the what they're going for better. Um, but basically, I kind of sit down and I, I, I like to think of composition as a series of parameters all put together. So you have the rhythm, you have the pitches, you have your harmonic language, like what types of pitches are you using, what types of scales, what type of rhythmic language, what kind of instruments, what uh, time signatures are could be possible for this genre you're going for or this vibe. Um, and so it's kind of making those decisions that will help me come up with the actual material. Like I usually start with like the instrumentation first, like choosing like a color palette. So it's like, I'm going to do all these instruments together. Like, I think that is usually how I start. It's like, okay, I want like, for example, the soundtrack I did, the window box, it was a visual novel and the client wanted like, she sent me a lot of Debussy piano music and kind of jazz. So I was like, okay, I want, a piano, I want bass, I want drums, I want vibraphone, and maybe I want to add some synths, some light, airy, pretty synths that will fit with the vibraphone. You know what I mean? I'm trying to find elements that are going to fit to get to my goal. But I like to think, and this is like a metaphor I use for my students as well, is I like to think of composition as like a Sudoku puzzle. So Sudoku, right, you have all these squares and you have some numbers are already in there and then you're filling out the X the outside numbers based upon the numbers you have because there needs to be like one through nine in a row. So it's like I I get all my elements. I'm like, okay, she wants Debussy. I'm going to make it kind of pretty. I want some seventh chords. I want some nice pretty theme. and um, But I don't want to be too happy. So contrast of some major and minor chords and kind of make it pretty. And so I'll work from like Sudoku, work from the most important element, decide that first and then outwards. So it's like maybe the, the most important element is the, the instruments. And then I'll work out from that, like what 
what melody will sound good on this instrument. And I kind of just like improvisation, I say. It's like composition improv. So I'll like just load up some patch, some like virtual instrument or play on piano and just kind of doodle around with the with the harmonic language I had determined from the parameter. So I'm trying to like keep everything, always keep focused in every choice because composition to me is a bunch of little choices and keep it all towards what I'm trying to go for. So I'm going for this pretty Debussy music that's going to work with this game. I need to remember that or I might just go on a total tangent. You know, I've done this before where I'm like, oh, this sounds cool and then this sounds cool with this. And then you basically have written something that's totally different than what you were trying to do and doesn't fit. So I'm <laughs> always trying to serve my the thesis of what kind of piece it's trying to be. So I'll work from the most important element out. And this helps because one, then you can fit the other elements around it. And also then you have more context. So if I wrote a melody that like is just a bunch of stepwise motion, so one note up at a time, then, and that's in three, four, maybe now I want my drums to kind of outline like boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick, and like kind of have that waltz groove, if that's what I'm going for. So I can actually start making choices around my main element. You know what I mean? And so it actually, it's not like, I don't like sit there and like think of every part at once. I'm like, okay, what's the, what's the main feature? What's, what's the most important element? Maybe it's the melody. Maybe it's the chord progression. Maybe it's like some cool synth texture. Maybe it's the color palette, the type of instruments I want. And then I can make choices around that. And that also helps, I think, compositionally because then you have, you have like, um, a main element the audience is supposed to listen for. And then you don't have a bunch of competing stuff. It's not like, oh, I have a melody and I shoved all this crap on top of it. It's like, that was my main, that's the main point of this. And that's what I want the listener to latch onto. So everything else will, will be created to support that main feature. And that helps even throughout all the stages, like even in the mixing, because you not all these elements are competing. So like, okay, the melody's most prominent, this percussion's in the background. You know what I mean? It will kind of start to sort itself out because you're one staying consistent with the goal you're trying to achieve two working from the most important element outwards which will help you actually make those choices because technically in composition you could do whatever you want but only certain choices will fit with what your main element is or what you're trying to do so it kind of starts to whittle down choices because I find it very hard to be creative when you can do anything. That's like the worst case scenario for me. It's I like to set parameters. So if the client doesn't set parameters, I will set parameters. It's like, okay, we're only using these many instruments. This is the kind of instruments we're doing. This is the kind of vibe we're going for. Because then you can actually make choices. Otherwise, it's like, I could just do anything. And then that's very overwhelming to me. So I try to first set parameters. What's my time signature? What's going on based upon the style of music or the piece I'm trying to go for. Like if it's a sad piece and it's slow, I don't want all this up-tempo, like crazy nonsense, right? That's just not going to fit with what I'm trying to do, even though I technically could. So I kind of think of it, I don't know that I necessarily believe in just like inspiration. Like I just, I just look out the window and I just feel it. Like I just, <laughs> I don't really think that's, mm, that's uh, uh, okay. I'm not really, I don't think that's a great thing to lean on even when it does happen. I think you can use logic and kind of train yourself to turn on creativity just by doing it. So again, like Berkeley, I wrote all those pieces constantly. Like every week we had a bunch of pieces. So now I just have trained myself to like, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write this. I'm going to write a piece. doesn't matter if it's amazing or not. I'm just going to do it because, well, 
when you have a deadline, that really helps too. Cause you're like, I got to turn it in. So, um, but it's kind of like you can use logic and reasoning and, you know, especially I do a lot of an analyzing other music and you can kind of learn all these tricks that kind of have worked for hundreds of years or in all these genres that work for a reason because they imply sadness, because they imply longing, you know? So when you kind of get so used to that vocabulary, you can actually sit down and just logically, it's, you know, it's still a creative process, but you can kind of go, okay, this would work, this would work. It's like if you were trying to write a book, you'd be like, okay, here are some common things that happen in romance novels. So maybe I don't want to start with everyone getting murdered like a horror movie. I mean, I could, <laughs> but right, you get what I'm saying? So you, if you learn kind of the vocabulary, you can start to manipulate it to do what you want and then add in some spicy, unique elements. But you can actually kind of checklist your way through the process and use that to help you if you're if you're feeling not inspired or it's just hard to get the ideas rolling. You can go, okay, logically, what what are my choices? What could I work from? Okay, let me start with this. And then everything starts to kind of flow. So that's that's what I I kind of you know, it's different for every piece, but I kind of try to think like that because then I never get stuck with, oh, I'm just not feeling inspired, I'm not gonna write anything. You know what I mean? That's what I'm trying to avoid. Yeah, I'd like to transition, like, because I think it's a very natural transition, really, because, you know, when inspiration fails you, as I put in the question list that I sent to you, and uh, how you deal with writer's block and uh, and stuff like that. And I guess you kind of have already answered that and that you approach it in a kind of a different way than I've heard from a lot of other people, really. Yeah, I just try to force myself to do it, too. I So if I have... Writer's block. Writer's block is, again, a very interesting term that I don't even know that I agree with. It's more like maybe there's not a clear idea or there's too, usually it comes from, I think there's too many options. There's too many starting points. So if you try to kind of methodically think it through and go, okay, these are really my only options for what I'm trying to do. Let's try this, this. And then you just sit down and like, or like, I'm going to write something. I might not use it. It might be garbage, but I'm going to do it. So if you do that enough, you'll just trick your brain to be able to come up with stuff. So you can actually kind of learn creativity, if that makes any sense. In my experience and what I've worked with with students is like not letting writer's block get the best of you, but also sometimes like your brain's just fried and you just need to take a break. That's also a thing is <laughs> like, if it's just not working out and you've been trying and you're just tired, attempt the next day, you know, just go watch a movie. So sometimes your brain's also just fried, but I think you can trick yourself to being creative. I was going to ask, like, when that happens to you and your brain just short circuits, what do you do to unwind? Yeah, well, I, I note this from when I things start getting objectively worse, like especially mixing. If I'm just like starting to ruin stuff, I'm like, I need a break. It's like when you're painting and like you add too many bushes and you're like, oh no, I'm like ruining it. Um, <laughs> But no, I just, I do a myriad of things. I like to play a lot of games. I've been working my way through Sekiro, my second playthrough now. Oh man, what a, um, what a stress reducer, huh? <laughs> no, I love it though, because it's like, it takes, I like to do things that take my mind totally off it. Because if you're, if you're having, if you're struggling or burnt out or your brain's just fried and then you lay on the couch watching TV, but you're still thinking about it, now that ain't relaxing. You're still like trying to figure it out, right? So it's something that like takes my mind totally off it. Like I like video games that are like really engaging or like puzzle games where I have to have all my attention on it. So I cannot be thinking in the back of my mind, oh, how am I going to fix this? Or, uh, you know, I'm frustrated. So, or I'll like listen to other music that like 
pop music that helps me relax or just music that I like. Like I just listen to a lot of music, take in my headphones and go for a walk around the block. And then usually I come back and I'm like, oh yeah, this is what I should be doing. So just trying to totally get my mind off of it, which is hard, but try to focus totally on something else. And then you can come back with a fresh mind. Um, so yeah, I just try to, so I actually do things that aren't quite that relaxing, I guess. Things that may maybe take up my intention so that my brain can relax from whatever my musical struggle was. Well, I uh, want to jump back into the compositional process again. And, and like a specific thing that I noticed, because, uh, you know, I, I try to listen to as much music from you as, as I possibly could before we had this interview. And uh, you tend to mix, like, at least to me, you tend to mix like very interesting techniques into your tracks, like diverse, very interesting things. I like Philip Glass, like piano lines and combined with like lo-fi chiptune music and stuff. And I kind of want to know why that is, like what that comes from for you. Well, I I think fundamentally it sounds from I just listened to an ungodly amount of music. And like at the conservatory, we had music listening tests every week where they'd be like drop the needle of a symphony like you had to listen to a bunch of symphonies and they'd play 30 seconds and you have to say what it is I mean you just listen to an obscene amount of music and I also just love music I'm like oh this is a new style or what's this so I just love all these different styles of music and so I like to just kind of like a chef just see if things taste good together I don't know I mean maybe I haven't heard it quite done this way before I'm like okay well like yeah I like lo-fi music I was really into that and that's what this particular client kind of wanted like this fall time vibes but I like um you know pretty like interlocking pattern piano music kind of from marimba's all this stuff is like interlocking patterns of like 20th century percussion and like will that fit together maybe I can create a cool piano texture and you know see if that works with the with the with chiptune music because you because you really don't know kind of unless you try like you can you can kind of logically go all right this is a very um this is a very harsh sound this is a very bright sound if I have it high and then I have a mellow sound kind of lower that doesn't have such an attack that might fit together you know you're trying to kind of mix elements but you also don't know until you've tried like for every element I've combined it that sounded great I've also tried a lot that I was just like this is a bad idea <laughs> this just doesn't sound good <laughs> like maybe at the time I listened to it the next day I'm like yeah no that's not gonna work so you you don't just know until you stick it together um would you say that this kind of experimentation happens like at the beginning of a piece that you write or like in the middle because we talked about your kind of sudoku approach to it and I'm curious to to hear if you start out a piece by experimenting like finding a cool like tone or like texture and then go from there or if that's something that you kind of figure out halfway through a piece that oh uh, I need this here and then you kind of work until you find the right sound or uh, it's a little bit of both it's it's mostly the first scenario in which I try to come up with all the textures and instruments first and like what's my color palette of sounds I'm going to use that are going to fit together so there's a lot of experimentation there but then it's also sometimes like the Sudoku puzzle where it's like, I have all these elements, but I'm missing. It just feels empty. I need some base. So what can I, based upon the elements I have, what what might sound good? And then try a different option. So again, I'm not necessarily just throwing darts into the wind. I'm like trying to logically think, okay, I need some percussion, like a light shaker. Oh my God, I love shaker. Pro tip, just throw shaker in anything. It just, <laughs> uh, it just adds like some, you know, it just adds some movement to it, like going chick, you know, and it's not that noticeable. It's not like a hi-hat that's like jarring. It's like just in the background doing a little shaker thing. Um, but yeah, so I'm just trying to 
trying to see what's missing, what could I be adding? So yeah, it's throughout the process, I think, but mostly for me at the beginning. So I like to try and zero in on like one piece uh, of music from the uh, the guest on the show that I kind of like that really spoke to me specifically. And I kind of want to talk to you about the uh, the track uh, called Amen no Kaori uh, from uh, Persimmons by Soft, Soft Hugs, which is also something that may, maybe you want to, you know, tell us what that's all about. And I just want to, you know, I want to hear more about that track and that album and, and what happened there. So this was like last fall. This was a client who she's a she's an artist, but she's also making a game. And we just like followed each other on Facebook. I don't know how I saw something and she followed me back. I don't know. But I've just been following her and, you know, I post my music, whatever. And so she just messaged me. She's like, hi, I'm putting together like a little EP of like um, fall themed game music you know, would you like to write a track for it? You know, she sent me some examples. She's like, I'm just trying to do kind of like a little kind of like chip tune, just a fall album to go along with my artwork. And I was like, sure, that sounds fun. Like, that's what I mean by like, sometimes you get like kind of one-off tracks. I was like, yeah, cool. And she was really nice. And like, it seems cool. So, so she just sent me some examples and was like, oh, you know, do whatever. She didn't say lo-fi. So she's just like, you know, fall vibes. Right. And I was like, okay, pumpkin spice, leaves, changing color. Well, I go to pumpkin spice because I'm basic, but Uggs, you know, I'm just thinking like, and I was just listening to a lot of lo-fi at the time. And I was like, oh, lo- I've never written like a lo-fi track. And I don't have that much experience with chiptune either. Like I did a, a little bit. Oh, and chiptune, I guess we should explain that. It's like yes. kind of retro sound. How would you, maybe you'll be better at that than me. Like it's like retro synths that like sound like they're from Game Boys and Oh man, go I mean, you, yeah, <laughs> you could you could totally go into like a, a huge amount of detail there. But uh, normally, when when we say chip tune, we generally mean uh, music generated by a chipset, uh, and it refers it usually refer, refers to Nintendo and uh, Game Boy, where you have these like you have these oscillator channels, and you had very few of them, a very limited color palette of sounds that you could mix together. And uh, so chiptune is kind of like a combination of using those kinds of instruments and also um, lim- limiting yourself. So you, you don't really have a lot of tools to work with. And that kind of spurs creativity in a different way, I feel at least. Yes, yes. 
Yes, that was that was a great explanation. <laughs> um, so so yes, yeah, so she had mentioned like throw. She wants some chiptune element in it, right? And for me, I never really like listened to a bunch of chiptune music, so it's has a kind of a retro feel to me. I was never that into it until I heard like Disaster Piece, which you should all check out. And yes, I was you like, should oh, all do it that. can be awesome because I thought it was kind of like, uh, why do people listen to this? Like to be honest, I was like, eh, it's just kind of whatever. It sounds kind of old to me. Cause I just didn't really have an affinity for it when I was younger, <laughs> but then I listened to him and I was like, Oh, so it can be awesome. I got it. Um, so it's kind of, um, so anyway, with that track specifically, she, she said, I want a chip tune element. I want fall vibes. Here are the pictures. And it was like these cute pictures of persimmons. Like that was the title of her album. And so I just kind of was like, okay, I will get back to you. And then I just, um, she gave me like a couple weeks actually. And I was just like, okay, I've been listening to a lot of lo-fi. Let me try my hand at it. I haven't tried. So I like was like, okay, they have the vinyl scratch. So I put that in there. They have this beat that's like, boom, okay, you know what I mean? So again, I've looked at the elements from this genre and was trying to replicate them, right? Like what is definitive of this genre that would give it that vibe? Same with the chip tune. It was like, okay, I want to throw a lot of reverb on it. I kind of want to make it fit. If it's too gritty, it wouldn't really fit with like having my other, you know, my other kind of lo-fi vibe, you know, it just would, I think it wouldn't have fit. So I was trying to make my synths kind of fit. So again, I was picking out my color palette and then I was like, I want some like kind of weird textural synth, but I just like could not find anything that I had like that would work. So I was like, I want it to be piano, but I don't want it to be piano, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, what if I take a piano and I just outline a chord and I just go like eighth notes, boopy, 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 boopy. And I record that in different chords and then I reverse it. So that, and then just drown it in reverb. Oh, that's cool. And that's so what that that's sound what, came yeah, from. That's what the texture is. So it's like, I recorded the piano, drowned it in reverb. I think I threw a delay on it too, which like makes it kind of sound echoey. And so that's what that was. So I record that took a while because I had to like record each chord because I couldn't just record the progression because if I reversed it, it would be backwards. So I had to like do them individually. Um, but yeah, so then I had that and then I put like a low pad synth that was like, um, doing the bass notes. And then I added, I had kind of had the chiptune thing, the chiptune synth do the melody. So yeah, I was trying to find elements that sounded like warm and kind of folly and kind of pretty, but also gamey. So yeah, sometimes it's just like, oh, let me see if that'll work, you know? And so the reverse piano thing I thought sounded cool. It does. So I went along with that and um, yeah, and just kind of added like a whistle synth to contrast the grittiness of like the chiptune synth. So again, I was trying to find contrasting and complementary elements so that it would all kind of sound cohesive, even if it was different kind of genres. So that's kind of how that came about. She said, make it as long as you want. So I made it kind of long to like, because uh, it needed, I think, a little bit of variety of sections. But yeah, so um, yeah, that was a really fun one because it was like, I like working on a new genre I haven't done at all. Because it's just like, oh, let's give it a whirl. You know, I know how to analyze other things. Let's just see what happens. It might be kind of fun. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how that came about. What does the title mean? I'm no Japanese expert. I think Ame is rain, right? Oh, it's the 
it's the scent of rain. Ah, okay, and cool. And so I had my sister is fluent in Japanese. She lived in Japan for a couple of years. So that was also part of the client's aesthetic was like kind of Japanese. I, I don't remember why, but she wanted the titles to be Japanese. I can't remember how that came about. But anyway, so I had my sister. I was like, what's something that's like fall rain vibes? And she's like, oh, she gave me a couple options. So I picked that one because I was like, oh, I feel like that fits because it's like, you know, the vinyl almost can sound like rain pitter patter and kind of gives you this kind of cozy vibes. So. Absolutely. Uh, this is off topic, but did you know that there's actually a scientific word for the, the scent of rain? Oh, what is it? It is, it's called petrichor. Wow, that sounds like a death metal band. I know, right? My wife taught, like, told me just a few days ago, it's like, oh, smell that? That's the, like a lovely petrichor. And I was like, it's a lovely what? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> but yeah. I love that. That's like my favorite type of weather is when the when the dirt's all wet and you get that like smell of wet wood and dirt. I don't know why. I just love it. Oh, I agree so. 100%. It's the scent of yeah. like fall and cozy yeah. and, like, and like hot chocolate and roaring yes. fires. And yes, oh, yes. I, it's my favorite thing. I absolutely agree. Anyway, tangent aside, uh, I want to move on to the process of arranging music now because hmm. listeners may or may not be aware of what Materia Collective is. And if you aren't, Materia Collective uh, basically started a couple of years ago when the Final Fantasy VII remake was announced uh, for the first time. Uh, and uh, a couple of us music nerds, uh, game music nerds, uh, uh, just decided that we had to write uh, like some arrangements and make, an, make an, a remix album of Final Fantasy VII music. And we called it Materia. And, uh, and I was on that. And then we just kept going. the The next one was Successor, which was Final Fantasy VIII, and then, yeah, we've just been we've grown into a massive, enormous collective. We are like hundreds and hundreds of people now: uh, musicians, composers, arrangers, um, orchestrators, vocalists. I mean, we we have we have every every kind of person right now who's just interested in, in video game music and uh yeah so i've been part of it from the beginning and taylor you've been uh, you've been working on some tracks too i'm not actually 100 percent sure when you joined um so this was again after school when i was in oregon and was like i should try to find stuff to do and so one of my friends from Berkeley Valencias was part of this, was part of Material Collective. They have like a big Facebook group. And he was like, you should join because, oh, this was what it was. They were working on the Hero of Time, which was a big orchestral Zelda album. So they were going to like live record for orchestra a bunch of Zelda arrangements. Right. And um, the guy who was in charge of it, Eric, uh, was like looking a post. They were going to hire someone to help out. And so my friend sent this to me to be like, you should try this. So I, so I sent them my link and was like, hey, you know, I saw your post. What's up? So we met up, had a kind of interviewish situation. It was more like dinner, what's up? But they were like, yeah, that would be great. Can you help us? So that was my first thing with them was being hired to help with some of those uh, Zelda arrangements. So that was very fun. Uh, they would basically send me the... I do, I do some orchestration work now. It's kind of similar. They send you their project file and then are like, hey, we don't have the strings. Can you figure something out? And then you go, okay, what's the chords? What's going on here? And you kind of arrange it for orchestra. And that's where all my Berkeley knowledge came in. It's like when you're arranging for live people to play, it's different than just arranging when it's going to be digital because you need to make sure the people can play it <laughs> and it's going <laughs> to yeah. sound good when it's played. So it's like, okay, you know, 
the, what's the, you know, the lowest string on a cello is C. So they've written something lower than that. I got to fix it. You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, just making sure it's playable. Do the winds have enough room to breathe and kind of like, Oh, I'm going to add a, it was, it was, it was nice. Cause like I added like, it's, it was in, it's in the final, one of the final tracks and it's not from Zelda. It's like, I've just made a bassoon solo in this one texture. And I was like, they'll probably cut this cause it's superfluous, but it's in there. And I listened to it back and I was like, yeah, bassoon solo, you go girl. Um, but yeah, so you're just kind of, so that was interesting because it was like so big scale because it was going to be for orchestra. And um, so yeah, they just, you know, he just sent me like a couple tracks. Can you do this, this and that? And then, you know, I would send them back and then they went with, you know, whatever from there. So yeah, that was my first experience with them. And then I just arranged some tracks on my own for like Final Fantasy Tactics, I think, which I had never played. Um, and then uh, the Fez album, which again, I had become a fan of Disaster Beast, So I was like, oh, I want to do one. So I did like one of his arrangements from a Rimba quartet. No, two marimbas like vibraphone and cajon. And um, I made the marimbas kind of like echo each other because he on the track from the game Fez, he has like delays on his synths. So I was like trying to kind of replicate that texture. Um, yeah, so that's how I got started with them. It's uh, really cool uh, that you mentioned that because those are both albums that I was on too. And when it comes to Fez, uh, Tesseract, that album, uh, the instructions for the arrangers were, was very specifically like try to make this very intimate and very, well, it was acoustic. That was like the, the, yes. the guiding word. And I remember listening to the music there and Disaster Pieces music is really, really good in that, in that game. It, it always is. And I remember listening to that and going like, hmm, how can I translate this? Because it's very well, chiptune again, it's very synthy, and how can I make this acoustic? And you went for like percussion, and I went for string ensemble, and I think it's really, it's really cool. Uh, I want to talk about the process where you decide on the track that you want to work on, specifically. Like, oh yeah, this is the one I want to do. Um, well, basically it was just what I thought, what tracks I like, and then what I thought I could come up with like what I thought, what I had some ideas for. Mm -hmm. um, so the Final Fantasy Tactics one, I just took whatever was left over because I joined it late. So I was like, if you need help, just give me the quote-unquote scraps and I'll do those tracks. <laughs> um, but for the Fez one, I picked Adventure because I was like, I think this would work really good with Marimba. Um, it's hard because it's trying to figure out what to do with arrangements. So like speaking of Materia, I am producing a arrangement album that's coming out at the end of this month, actually, that is The Last of Us Arrangements. And so I picked that because I love that soundtrack. So it's it's easier to arrange stuff when you, well, it's also easier and harder because if you love something so much, you're like, oh my God, I better not ruin this, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like when you love something so much, you kind of want to do a good job with it and trying to figure out what, how can I take this material and be respectful of the original creation, but also kind of maybe do it in a little bit of a different way so that it can kind of justify its existence. So on the album that Materia did uh, called Menu, which was just an homage to title themes and uh, introduction themes, uh, you were a mentor on that album. And uh, so was I actually. So, but uh, I... I want to talk about that experience for you and what that entailed, because since you are you are a teacher, that must have like that experience must have come in handy for you there. And what did what did being a mentor entail for you there? 
Um, so as I recall, I think we did just a live, like a masterclass. So basically people submitted their tracks they'd been working on and then we played them live and I shared my screen and kind of dissected them. And then also they, some of them couldn't make that and they sent it to me individually and then I wrote them back notes. But basically I was just, they had questions like a lot of it, I think was orchestration questions. I think actually that was my role was the orchestration mentor. See, I can't even quite remember, but I think it was a lot of like, you know, will this work on the violin? Well, how will this sound? You know? So I was basically explaining like, Hey, your woodwinds need, cause it, you, when you're making digital music, your flute can play forever. Right. Yeah. But like a real flutist flautist needs to breathe. So just bringing to attention those kind of things and trying to, it, it's a balance of, I mean, it's like the same with my students when they have something they're trying to submit. It's like, it's a balance of like what critique can actually be useful. Cause I in school or sometimes would you basically get a critique that's like just start over? And it's like they don't have time, you know? So it's like not that any of these people needed to start over, but it's like what is cause some of them like the deadline was close for a check-in. So I was trying to think like what is actually useful that they could do within the timeline. So it was also like my critique was very pinpointed in trying to be relevant for things they could actually get done. You know what I mean? As opposed to being like, oh, you could add this whole section. You know, mm-hmm. I might make comments like that in the future. If you had time, you could do this, this. But for now, I would focus on this, this, and this. And trying to like make it relevant so they're just not overwhelmed with information or, you know, trying to explain my reasonings for things. Like I would, that's what my composition teacher, the one at Boko was really great about is like she would explain why. Like she would explain her reasoning. That always bugged me is that when teachers would go, oh, this needs to be louder or, oh, the woodwinds should do this. And um, I was I was always like, but why? You know, so I tried to explain like, all right, you know, this part isn't, I don't think going to sound how you mean it in real life because the bassoon's going to crack when it gets this high. So you might want to try this, you know, trying to explain kind of a methodology and then they can, you know, take my, take my suggestions how they please. Right. But yeah. trying to like explain, this is why I would think X, Y, Z and you know, something you could do in your time frame. That is so, so, so important. I just, I can't stand like, you know, criticism that kind of goes, yeah, you should never do this. And and that's just it. You know, it's just like, why should I never do this? First of all, probably I could probably do this anyway, and it might be cool. And you just don't want to do it, you know, or like, you know, what's your, what's, what's the reasoning behind that? I mean, if the reason is, is that the cello cannot actually physically play below a low Z, uh, C, then yes, then that is definitely a legitimate thing. But, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. I remember the worst critique I ever got, like the most useless thing ever. I won't um, name drop the teacher, but this was at Boko and I was playing some snare drum thing, right? And I didn't like it. And I had played it because I had played this etude or something. And he just sits there and then he goes, can you play it more musically? Mm. And I was just like, oh, my God. First of all, that's what I was trying to do. Second of all, what am I supposed to do with that? Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that helps me in no regard. I was just like, oh, my God. So I always try to avoid stuff like that. Like, can you just play it better? You know, that kind of stuff where you're like, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Can you do that again, but just, just do it good this time? <laughs> it's like You just like make it better, though. And I'm like, oh, well, that. oh, I was trying to make a garbage piece. So thank you for that. I didn't even think to try to make it better. You know, <laughs> that's such a terrible thing to say. 
<laughs> oh man. Well, that leads us very well uh, into this next section here, which is how well how do you deal with criticism? Uh, this is a very very broad co- uh, topic, uh, and I just. I just want to hear more about how, like, when you get critique on your music, uh, like, how you process that and how you work with it and how you change with it, I guess. Um, That's a very, very excellent question. And as, of course, my answer is my own opinion, and it will differ from people to people. But um, I, first of all, for my own music, before it's released, I will just send it to a select few people that I trust to give it to me straight. Like I have a friend from Berkeley Valencia who like tell me the straight up truth. He'll be like, this ain't good or this should be this or whatever. And so I'll just, I'll just send it to people I know who will give it to me straight doc and also be useful. Right. And like, what can I fix or what, what do they think? And I, I trust and value their opinion. So I think part of it is when you get critique thinking, who's the source is this relevant to me? And do I agree with this? Because I think it's it's bad to just go, oh, I'm amazing. And you know, none of these people know anything, right? That's, you're never going to get better. Yeah, no. But you also can't like internalize every critique and just like be like, oh, I'm terrible, right? It's a balance. And I think it's also important to vary your sources of critique. Like, yes, I have my friends who are musically inclined and would be able to say, you know, give me some technical critique, like about the mix. But I also like just people who aren't quote unquote musicians who just go, oh, this is pretty or, oh, this is boring, you know, because mm-hmm. they have a different perspective. They won't get all, you know, technical about it. Like I like sending it to like pieces to my mom because she she tells it to me straight. And I'll talk about someone, she should be like, I don't like this, um, but she's great. But she will just have kind of more of an emotional reaction and like, you know, people on SoundCloud or whatever. So I think it's also not good to just have like your own circle of music friends like get critique from, but also from just a general audience member because that's who's mostly going to be listening to it, right? Mm-hmm. But then you also can't, get caught up in everything someone's ever said to you because, you know, you might not be agreeing with their opinion. Um, you might, or you might be like, oh, you know, they bring up a good point. So it's kind of like trying to judge the source. And also if you agree with that fact, be like, oh, I never thought of it. Maybe this is kind of boring or whatever the critique was. But I think it's important. Like I never liked at the conservatory. It feels like I'm dragging the conservatory, but I really do have all my knowledge from it. So I'm trying so I don't mean to totally drag it um, because I would know nothing without it. So, you know, Boca was good. But one thing that annoyed me is that it was just a shock in the culture, but there was a bit of a culture of like, quote unquote, elitism. Mm-hmm. And so like, oh, you have to have a certain taste to be able to critique music. You know, I remember uh, one of the first concerts I saw was like this avant-garde, like percussion piece that was like, like it's got all this yeah. kind of random sounding stuff to a, a regular person as I was. And the grad student was like, oh, what do you think of it? And I was like, oh, I don't really like it. And he's like, oh, you just don't get it. You know, you just don't get it. So I hate when people say you just don't get it. Yeah. I was like, oh, I need to have three master's degree to enjoy your piece. Like, I just think that's a bad attitude. So then I made sure to understand it and, you know, spend my four years learning all about this. And I can be like, I understand it. I just still don't like it. <laughs> And so it's like, I think there's, 
I love pop music and I think video games fall into that, right? It's like music for the general consumers, right? Like you're making it for your client, yes, but it's also going to be consumed by like just people and like fans of music or people who don't know anything about music. So I think it's also important to be kind of aware of feedback from quote unquote the general audience. So I want to talk a little bit about like track mixing and album art stuff because that's also fascinating to me. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about how you how you mix your music and like where you picked up how to do it and what your process looks like. How do I mix? That's a great question. Do I even know? I don't know. <laughs> um, so mixing is interesting. It's some that's like really my main point of trying of improvement over the last like year and a half. Um, so I learned mixing in in the in the master's program. We had a mixing course and they explained like, you know, reverb and all this stuff. So that really helped because I just had no idea. But it wasn't like that wasn't the main focus of the course, right? So what for listeners, mixing is like its own profession too. People are just mixing engineers, which is basically you're taking stuff and like adjusting the volumes of each instrument and adding reverbs that sounds like further away and, you know, kind of making it sound shinier. You know, they, they can do all this technical stuff to kind of manipulate your track, so to speak. Um, so that's someone's whole profession. So I have been trying to do that on my own for, you know, cause that's what I've been having to do. And really what I, what I try to do is I mix as I go, basically, because I, as I add each element, I make it sound where I want it to sound. I pan it in the right place that I want. I add whatever effects. So I really kind of mix as I go. So then by the end, I'm just kind of making sure it's all polished um, because then I might want to change elements if I, if it's not sitting well in the mix as I'm going, you get what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um so I basically do it as I go. And then I like watch a lot of videos. I look at a lot of articles and I do a lot of, use a lot of reference mixes. So I like listen to a lot of things like in the genre I'm trying to do. What does that sound like? Like for uh, the window box is another good example. Cause like that all sounds really close. Cause like her examples were like these kind of close mic'd jazz quartet. So it's like kind of an unconventional mix. Cause I wanted like, I, I bought this piano. It's called... Oh my God, what was the name? Piano in Blue. It's like Cine samples, I think. Mm-hmm. But I liked that that library because like it's really close mic. Like it sounds like you're right there. So I was also picking samples that were going to fit with what I, what mix I was trying to go for. Because again, mixing is like also a matter of taste and style. So that's what I mean by back to like making sure all my parameters suit my goal. Mixing is another thing. And like, are my elements going to fit together? What kind of... Do I want it to sound further away? Do I want it to sound closer? Which ones, again, like which element's the most important that should be the most prominent in the mix? And so I kind of do that as I'm composing um, and then trying to use reference mixes and flipping back and forth between them constantly because also, and taking a lot of breaks because your ears can get strained and then it all just sounds like nonsense. Yeah. I didn't really realize your ears could get strained. And then I was like, this sounds like crazy town. Oh, ear fatigue is totally a real thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, people. Yes. And wear earplugs and protect your ears and all that stuff and like take breaks and like don't sit in headphones for hours. No. Um, but yeah, it's just like, so I'm tr- I try to like, well, print my mix, you know, if I have time and put it in a playlist with other tracks. So if someone were to listen to it with other stuff, would they have to crank the volume up or down? Would it sound too muddy? You know, just trying to like, 
because you kind of get in your own bubble when you're writing a piece. So trying to figure out like, how would this sound in the wild to, to someone who's not me? Like, would they have to crank their volume? Would it sound weird? You know what I mean? So I, I use a lot of reference mixes of the genre, of the kind of mix I'm trying to go for and trying to like flip back and forth between that constantly to kind of aim it. Um, but also it's, it's something that's more and more been in my mind when I'm starting composing too. Like what kind of library am I going to use? How's this going to work? How do I want this to sound? Cause it's, it's, I think it, what has caused me trouble in the past was like waiting till the end you know, because they're like, oh, I'm going to compose it all and then I'll mix it at the end. And that was just like so hard because how I had written it wasn't like a, some elements were overlapping. Maybe it wasn't well orchestrated. So now it's hard to mix. You know, it was like a, orchestration, like making sure people are playing in different ranges and kind of out of each other's way, both texturally and like frequency wise will like save you a lot in the mixing process. Like if you do a bunch of this, if you think about a bunch of this stuff and do these steps ahead of time, like when you get to the end, it's actually like not that bad. You don't have to like quote unquote fix all this stuff in the mix, you know? So I've been doing that a lot more over the last like year and a half of like being much more aware of what is my mix going to sound like and how am I working on that as I'm going. Yeah, I think that's a very important lesson to take with you. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're having problems with like with your mixing, it's always like a lot of the mixing is actually done as you write the, the piece, especially if you write for like live instruments and stuff, then yeah, you have to kind of think of that in like beforehand. So that's a very cool thing to, to think about. Right. So um, what about your album art then? Uh, do you commission it or do you have like a favorite artist? Um, well, the album art for the soundtracks has been the artist of the game. Right. So I don't have any hand in that really, um, except for like put my name here, whatever. Um, and then, yeah, they've basically just been the arts from the projects and like this project in the future, I have my sister doing the art cause she's a, a visual artist and I thought she would stylistically do it really well. So yeah, I haven't had that much experience like commissioning artists. Um, it's mostly just provided to me by the developer right because they have an aesthetic cool just uh just asking <laughs> no it's, i mean it's a good question some people like hire a specific artist and they go out of their way especially if you're dropping your own album which i haven't done yet of just like my own music but maybe i will come across that in the future right so we're uh, we're getting towards the end here but i uh i want to ask you a little bit because we haven't talked about that at all but um you teach uh, private online classes, both on, well online and offline, and uh, I just kind of like want to hear more about your experience with like teaching students online and like how you prepare for lessons, what they like, and y you know if if anyone would like to do what you do, do you have any tips for them? Yeah, so um, I teach online and in person here in Seattle, mostly in person actually, um, and. I teach through a site called takelessons.com. I was turned on to it by actually another composer who was teaching and I was like, what are you using? Um, and yeah, so I basically, it's tricky because every student has their own way of learning. And these are, most of my students are adults who are uh, doing this kind of for fun and kind of on their own time. And um, so basically I have prepared kind of all my own materials and like books and music that I like because I'm trying to draw from everything I liked and didn't like about my schooling because I had I'd spent, you know, 
my 22 years in school, right? So um, that was, so I was, you know, I was trying to think like, oh, I really didn't like playing a bunch of etudes. So, you know, we don't really do that. I try to always have them playing pieces of music because that's what always tripped me up, especially in percussion was like, I'm playing all these etudes and I don't want to be doing it. And it's not real music. You know, it's not like a piece. So I always try to have people doing pieces. We do a lot of like transcriptions of pop music and figuring out chords. So I'm trying to give them skills that like um, they can just use in real life. You know what I mean? It's like, it depends on your students, I think, but most of mine aren't like preparing for an audition or a concerto or something. So it's more like, how can you, how can we learn to analyze and play music that's fun and relevant to you? So you can just like ear train and kind of pick out a pop song that you like and play it with your friends. You know, it's more that kind of stuff. So I'm trying to like figure out what they want to do and kind of suggest to them and guide them and give them tools so that they can go on learning without me for the rest of their lives. I mean, I think that would... I like, you know, that that's my goal is that they can do all this without me at some point, right? And have the tools. Oh, I know how to break this down. I know how to figure out these chords. And, um, you know, I just try to keep that music is so cool. And that's what I love about all my students is that they like have such an, they just like think music's so cool, right? Because I mostly teach like beginners or kind of intermediate starting out kind of, and they just think music's so cool. And it is so cool. Like, it's just the best thing ever. Like, I love it. So it's nice that they're so excited and passionate about it. And that makes me feel passionate and excited about it. And um, yeah, so I basically just prepare mostly my own materials, use a couple books and try to kind of give them the tools that, that might be useful to them throughout their whole lives. Okay. Well, as sad as it is to say, this is... Again, we're going towards the end of this interview here, and uh, when uh, when that uh, time comes, uh, I like to try and kind of, I don't know, just round it all off a little bit and ask you, like, if you have any, encourage, like, encouraging words or anything for those who might who who are listening who might want to try and write music for themselves or want to try and arrange, orchestrate, go to a like some sort of higher education place to to pursue their career, if you have any anything for them that you want to tell them? I would say what I hope you've gathered from this is that everyone has their own path and going to college might work, going to college might not work. The internet is a beautiful and big place now. You can find a lot of online courses. You can find a lot of videos. You can find a lot of like online private teachers like me, right? So kind of like that music is just so amazing and any art form that you want to do and kind of keeping your, kind of keeping that in mind always. Cause sometimes it's hard. Like we've talked a lot about a lot of the struggles and like how to do this and et cetera. But the most important thing is like keeping your love for it alive as cheesy as that sounds. So like remembering, Oh my God, I love like, you know, it always bummed me out when a lot of my friends just don't listen to music for fun. Cause they're like, Oh, I, I'm going to be too critical of it or whatever. Like, you know, keep listening to music, play games. If you make art, go to art galleries, look at a bunch of art. Like, you know, don't let the getting into the career field kind of squash your love for it in the first place. I think that's the primary point. And then secondly, I would say, like, if I could go back in time and talk to myself, I would say, like, start forming your own opinions, whatever, like, from today. Maybe you heard things that we said that you agree with or you disagree with. Start to think about, like, 
what's relevant to you? What do you, what kind of career do you want to have? What would make you happy? And not necessarily what other people think you should do or what you think you should be doing. What do you actually want to be doing? And what kind of things make you happy? And, you know, keeping that passion for your craft uh, alive because it's awesome. I love writing music. I love working with my students. Um, I love video games. And yeah, I just consume all this stuff even when I'm not working on it. So just keeping in mind that like this stuff is so cool. And if you go to music school, great. It's going to be, there's going to be some tough times, but I mean, I had a lot of great times. I played an orchestra. I had that great composition teacher. I had some great percussion teachers who really helped me. And really, you know, without that composition teacher, I probably wouldn't have gone into composition. So sometimes that can also be really helpful and like getting all these great experiences of working with live musicians, playing with other people, playing with other instrumentalists, like just soak up as much as you can because you have no idea what's going to be relevant. That's another point. It's like, you don't know some one jazz band class you took in middle school is now going to be applicable. Like you just don't know. So just try everything, try different styles, play different types of music, listen to everything and just kind of enjoy the art form and just like engross yourself in it. And then through that, I think you'll find kind of the, the path will like reveal itself to you, you know, as mystical as that sounds, based upon your interests and kind of why you love the craft in the first place. So that that would be my, I guess, closing thesis. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. I love it. Finally, I want you to just let us know where we can find you and your music online. Ah, yes. So my name is Taylor Ambrosio Wood. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. My Instagram and Twitter are at Ambrosia Wood. Um, and I post most of my music on SoundCloud. I have soundtracks on iTunes and Spotify, but my SoundCloud, which is just Taylor Ambrosio Wood, you can find and you can find a bunch of stuff there. That's kind of currently my portfolio. And um, yeah, and I'll post on like sometimes behind the scenes stuff or tutorials on like Instagram and Twitter. So yeah, feel free to check all those out. Yes, please do, everyone. And uh, finally, I just want to thank you so much for being on this on this episode of The Hummingbirds, Taylor. It was wonderful to talk to you. Oh my gosh, no, thank you. This was really fun. And thank you for your thoughtful questions and the interesting discussion. Like, this was, this was such a fun interview. Like, this is great. Thank you so much for listening to the third episode of The Hummingbirds. New episodes are hosted on hummingbirds.podbean.com and you can also find them on iTunes. Follow us at HummingbirdsPod on Twitter for news about the show. We also have a Facebook page that you can find by searching for the username HummingbirdsPod. The theme for the podcast was originally written by me and, for this episode, remixed by Taylor Ambrosio Wood. See you next time. Thank you.